Last week, began looking at the refrain in the Satipatthana Sutta that comes after each of the specific meditation instructions. The refrain arises 13 different times in the Sutta. And the first part of this is the teaching we talked about, which is looking at each of the four mindful abidings that is the mindful abiding of the body, of feelings, of mind, and of dhammas, internally, looking at them externally, and both internally and externally. Explored a little bit how practicing in this way helps keep our awareness centered and balanced, and also opens us to the transforming wisdom of emptiness. This evening, go into a little bit the second part of the refrain, which tells us to abide contemplating the nature of arising, the nature of passing away, and the nature of both arising and passing away, of each object of awareness. Contemplate the arising, the passing away, and both the arising and the passing away. Lady Sayadaw, who was one of the great Burmese masters of the turn of the last century, he was a great meditative master as well as a great scholar of Buddhism. He said that not seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena is impermanent, is the doorway to all the stages of insight to the different stages of awakening. There's something very important here. Not seeing the arising and passing away of experience is ignorance, and seeing the impermanence is the doorway to liberation. The Buddha emphasized the importance of this way of seeing in many different ways. He said, bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust, all lust for existence. It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots the conceit, I am. Well, that's quite a collection of results, right? Eliminating all sensual lust, all lust for existence, all ignorance, uprooting the conceit I am, all coming from the development and cultivation of seeing impermanence, seeing the arising and passing away. In another place, he said, it's better to live for a single day seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. That's really a very startling statement because what does that say about what we value and work for in our lives? What does it say about the liberating effect of seeing directly and in the moment and for ourselves this truth of change? 
it's better to live a single day seeing the momentariness of phenomena than a hundred years with whatever else we do and not see it. A few, few nights ago, in talking about karma, you know, and the effect of different kinds of actions and how all actions bring results, Buddha also talked about the power of various kinds of wholesome activities. And so he extolled the benefit, the karmic benefit of generosity, of giving. And it's said that the power, the merit of the giving is enhanced by the purity both of the giver and of the, the one who's receiving it. So naturally, if there were an opportunity to give to a Buddha or enlightened beings, that would tremendously purify the act, bring great benefit. He said, better than making an offering to the Buddha and the whole Sangha of enlightened monks and nuns, better than that, more meritorious, more fruitful, would be to have the mind absorbed even for a moment in the feeling of loving-kindness, boundless loving-kindness. And he said many times more beneficial than that is the mind which sees clearly and distinctly for a moment the truth of arising and passing away. So there's tremendous karmic fruit in this practice of awareness, this practice of mindfulness, Emphasizing this part of the refrain. Contemplate the arising and the passing, both the arising and passing away. Just to emphasize it a little further. At one time, Ananda was recounting to the Buddha the many wonderful qualities that the Buddha embodied. And the Buddha said, referring to himself as the Tathagata, the Buddha said, that being so, Ananda, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. For the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they're present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they're present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. I find it particularly encouraging that we can be sharing in that wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. Every time we also are seeing in this very clear and distinct way. In the Buddha's first teaching on selflessness, emptiness of self, it was the second discourse he gave after his enlightenment to the group of the five ascetics with whom he had been practicing previously. And it's called, commonly called the Anattalakana Sutta, which means the sutta on the characteristic of selflessness. 
In that discourse, he goes through each of the five aggregates in turn, pointing out their impermanence. And from that, he leads us, from, from seeing the impermanence, he leads us all the way to liberation. He points out their impermanence and also the fact that what is impermanent is also unreliable. It's ultimately unsatisfying precisely because it's impermanent. And then that what is unreliable, what is unsatisfying, cannot truly be called self or I. Can't be taken as I or mine. So the five ascetics heard this discourse and all became enlightened. So how does it happen? what What is the power of this very direct pointing to the truth of our experience? I mean, it's not hard for us to grasp, certainly not grasp, it's not difficult to grasp intellectually, and even it's not that difficult to see when we are paying careful attention, that all experience is changing, is arising and passing. And because of it, it's unreliable. We can't count on it. And because it's unreliable, unsatisfying, it can't truly be taken to be I or mine. Why is that understanding, which we can have for ourselves in our practice, what's the, what's the liberating power of it? When we see deeply, not conceptually, but when we are there clearly in the moment, seeing the arising and the passing and both arising and passing away of phenomena, We see that whatever is subject to arising is also subject to cessation. When we see this, the mind becomes disenchanted, becoming disenchanted, it becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. So that's the process through seeing the impermanence, through seeing that whatever arises passes away, the mind becomes disenchanted. Disenchanted, it becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, it is liberated. But sometimes we hear these words, and it's somewhat striking that in English, the word disenchantment or disillusionment or dispassion, often for us have a negative connotation. You know, we don't, we don't necessarily think of them as positive things. But if we look closely at the meaning of the words, we can see what their connection to freedom actually is. Becoming disenchanted means breaking the spell of enchantment. It's waking up to a fuller and more complete reality. 
You know, and as we know, it's the happy ending of so many myths and fairy tales. That, you know, someone was under a spell of enchantment in a closed and contracted world, and somehow the spell is broken, and they awaken into life. That is disenchantment. Disillusioned is not the same as being disappointed or being discouraged, as we often associate with that word. Disillusioned really means a reconnection to what is true, free of illusion. And dispassionate doesn't mean indifferent, it doesn't mean apathetic. It doesn't mean flat. Dispassionate means not caught up in the grip of wanting. Not caught in the grip of desire. It's really a mind, a dispassionate mind, is one of tremendous openness and tremendous equanimity. When one deeply sees that all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation, we become disenchanted. Becoming disenchanted, we become dispassionate. And through dispassion, the mind is liberated. A sustained contemplation a careful and sustained contemplation of impermanence leads to a very profound shift in the way we experience reality. Because we begin to see through the illusion of stable existence, both in what is perceived and also what is perceiving. You know, we so much have this idea, this illusion of stability. And it's precisely through the contemplation of impermanence that we break through that illusion. It radically reshapes our understanding of reality. A favorite example of mine is just when we think of, you know, the last time we might have gone to a really good movie. And we're absorbed in the story, and there's lots of feelings and emotions, and we're really in it. We're one might say, lost in the drama of it. And then we glance up in the darkness and we see the beam of light being projected on the screen. And we realize that nothing is really going on at all. Before we looked up, and before we reminded ourselves of the fact that nothing really is going on, we could have been completely caught up. lost in happiness, lost in excitement and sadness and terror, if you like horror movies. And yet nothing at all is going on. I'd like to read you something, which is... It'll take the powers of your concentration to stay with this. But it's... Well, you'll, you'll hear what it is. 
it has a surprise ending. Okay. Consider a world without consciousness. The darkness is a bubbling cauldron of energy and vibrating matter, locked in the dance of thermal agitation. Through shared electrons, or the strange attraction of unlike charges, quivering molecules not free to roam absorb and emit their characteristic quantal packages of energy with the surrounding fog. Free gas molecules, almost oblivious to gravity, but buffeted in all directions by their neighbors, form swirling turbulent flows or march in zones of compression and expansion. A massive solar flux and cosmic radiation from events long past crisscross space with their radiant energy and silently mix with the thermal glow of living creatures whose hungry metabolic systems pour their infrared waste into the chaotic milieu. But within the warmth of their sticky protein bodies, the dim glow of consciousness is emerging to impose its own brand of organization on this turbulent mix of energy matter. The active filter of consciousness illuminates the darkness, discards all irrelevant radiation, and in a grand transmutation, converts and amplifies the relevant. Dead molecules erupt into flavors of bitterness or sweetness. Electromagnetic frequencies burst with color. Hapless air pressure waves become the laughter of children. And the impact of a passing molecule fills a conscious mind with the aroma of roses on a warm summer afternoon. So what's the reality? As we see more deeply and more clearly what we could call the microscopic level of what's going on, when we see that on that level, everything that we take to be real is not really happening at all. But this doesn't mean that we don't experience or that we don't engage on the relative level. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in the movies and the dramas of our lives or the stories we tell about our meditation experiences to ourselves. But when we see on a deeper level, when we're contemplating on a momentary level, the arising, the passing away, both the arising and the passing away, then we don't drown (coughs) in reactivity and suffering. So it's a very different take on reality, (coughs) on what's important. So how can we practice this contemplation of impermanence? 
because it leads us to liberation. It leads us to freedom. We can be mindful of impermanence on so many different levels because it's a characteristic of everything. When wisdom arises, when we pay attention to impermanence in ways that we already know, but very often overlook. Just take, for example, the changes in nature. They're so obvious, they're all around us. You know, whether it's climate changes or the changes of the weather, especially here, every 10 minutes, it's a different, it's a different weather pattern whether we look at the changes of the evolution of species or the extinction of species. Now, so often we are responding one way or another to what is happening that we are not stepping back and seeing that it's all part of an inevitable process of change. You know, changes in in society on a collective level, on a big collective level, we could see the rise and fall of civilizations and cultures. I think very few people have that perspective about the culture or civilization in which we happen to be living. You know, we have the sense that this is how it is and how it will always be. But of course it's not. We see the changes on a more personal level. People being born and dying. One of the one of the poignant things about the New England woods. You know, very often you walk through these woods in New England, and you see these old stone foundations of houses, and all that's left are the foundations, you know, the stones piled, and the trees, you know, and weeds and stuff is growing right through the foundation. What histories took place you know, in those houses, of which now only a pile of rocks is left? You know, all the loves and hates and conflicts and relationships and whole life stories took place. And now we walk through the woods and nothing left. We see the changing nature of our relationships. All the many ways our many relationships go through changes. Changes in our work. And most intimately, of course, changes in our own minds and bodies. What's so surprising about all this, what's so surprising given all this, is that we still find change surprising that somehow, when it affects us personally, somehow we're taken by surprise. Because somehow we are so conditioned to count on things staying a certain way, of staying stable. Or if they're going to change, that they should only change for the better you know, the way we would like things to be. But that's 
not how it is. There's no evidence to support that. And all we have to do is open up and look around and pay attention in these most obvious of ways. This is not a subtle meditative attainment. It is all around us. And even in the meditation, I don't know how many times I would be sitting and I would be in a concentrated, still, quiet space and then for one reason or another thought would arise to get up and in my mind I would think, okay, I'll get up and then I'll just come back and pick up where I left off. (laughs) Rarely does it happen that way. It's always changing. So can we actually live in the awareness of this rather than just know it intellectually or conceptually. When we pay careful attention, we see that everything is continually disappearing and new things arising, not only every year, every month, every day, every hour, every moment. Things are disappearing, new things are arising moment after moment. So when you leave the hall this evening, you know, when you go out just as a little exercise, see if you can notice carefully the flow of changing experience. You know, the flow of visual forms as you walk by. Or the changing sounds that may arise and pass or the sensations in the body, or the kind of fleeting thoughts or images or moods. Just notice the flow of change. When we do, we see for ourselves directly that not a single one of them lasts really more than a moment. But the truth of this is so ordinary and so pervasive that we've mostly stopped paying attention. It's like we're not keying in, we're not looking, we're not contemplating, as the Buddha suggested in the sutta, we are not contemplating the arising, the passing away, both the arising and passing away. And yet it is the key element of liberation. As the mindfulness, and as the concentration gets stronger in our practice, we do have a clearer and deeper and more immediate seeing of this microscopic flow of change. There's something which I call NPMs, which is noticings per minute. You know, and at first in our practice, the NPMs are pretty low. Maybe we have 10 NPMs. But when the mindfulness is refined, when we are really attentive moment after moment, the NPMs go way, way up. The Buddha commented, so it said, that there are 17 trillion mind moments just in, a, in an instant. Well, that's a lot of NPMs. And then I don't know, I don't know how, he, how he counted them. And we may not get to that level, but we can get pretty refined. You know, we see that what appears solid and stable and substantial is really not that at all. 
things can start happening so quickly, changing so quickly, that even by the time the mind gets to an object, it's gone. You know, at this point, when this starts happening in the practice, we're really seeing on that level, sometimes people have the sense that their practice is no longer any good. You know, that the mindfulness has weakened, that the mindfulness has left. Because things are disappearing so quickly, they're not staying long enough for us to be mindful of them. And so people can misinterpret that as saying, oh, I can't be mindful anymore. But really what it is, is a further deepening, a further refinement of our perception of change. And we begin to see very directly that at least on one level, there's nothing much there. And that's why I like that that description of the, the primal soup. You know, because our minds create such solid, stable realities, and yet on the more fundamental energetic level, it's mostly empty. In one sutta, the Buddha makes an interesting distinction between the establishment of mindfulness which is the simple awareness of arising objects, and what he calls the development of the establishment of mindfulness. He's talking about two different things here. It's in the development of the four mindful abidings, not not merely the establishment of them, but the development of them, that the contemplation of the arising, the passing away, both the arising and passing, becomes the predominant emphasis. And so we go from the awareness of the content of what's arising to the level of the process. This is the development of satipatthana. We start, of course, with, okay, what it is. It's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. But at a certain point, the momentum of our noticing becomes strong enough, and it's the process of change itself which is the primary contemplation. And what it is that's arising becomes less and less important. As a meditative exercise, and something that helps to refine the attention, to hone it, It might be interesting and helpful to look at which aspect of impermanence at any one time is most predominant in your experience. So, for example, are you seeing mostly the arising of things? And then the next object arising before you see the first one having disappeared. And so the mind is keying in to arisings. Sometimes the mind is keying in just to the disappearing of objects, the dissolution of objects, and we don't really see them arise. Something disappears, and then there's something else which disappears, and then something else which disappears. So we're on that side of impermanence. 
And sometimes the mind is seeing both. It sees the arising, it's present, it passes away. It's not that any one of these is better or deeper than the other. Rather, in the course of our practice, in the natural unfolding, sometimes we'll see it one way, sometimes another way. And just by paying attention, by noticing how is it for me now, how am I seeing it now, it's just a way of strengthening our attentiveness. Because if we're not attentive, we won't know. When we were practicing with Saidao Upandita in his reporting form, what we would have to do is report on what the arising object was and what happened to it. Right? So we report, you know, with the rising and falling, and then a sound arises, a thought or a sensation. So we report on what arose and then what happened. Well, that was a tremendously powerful exercise because it demanded close attention. We wouldn't know what happened to the object unless we were right there with it and really watching, seeing, being aware. You might play with that, just, just as a way of strengthening the power of the mindfulness, strengthening the attentiveness. It's this development stage of satipatthana where the process becomes predominant rather than what it is that's arising. It's this development stage that leads to wisdom, it leads to awakening. Because if any object of experience, any aspect of experience at all, is still seen as permanent, and as stable, if any aspect of experience is seen as permanent and stable, then opening to the unconditioned, to Nibbana, is impossible. Because we're still taking a stand someplace. Someone came to the Buddha and said, In what way is a lay person, a lay follower, accomplished in wisdom? So the Buddha replied, A lay follower is wise, possessing wisdom, directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. In that way, a lay follower is accomplished in wisdom. So again, it's a very direct pointing to what leads to wisdom. Directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, seeing it deeply. So it is this deep understanding of impermanence that is a distinctive feature of what, at least in the Theravada tradition, is called stream entry, which is the first stage of awakening, the first stage of enlightenment. And that moment of stream entry, it's described in a very uh, 
clear way. It's described as the arising of the Dhamma vision, dustless, stainless, that whatever has the nature to arise, all that has the nature to cease. So that's the realization on a deep and profound level. And it's said that when Sariputta, before, before he was enlightened, he was still a kind of wanderer, uh, before he met the Buddha. He was walking by and he saw one of the first monks, one of those first five ascetics, uh, who the Buddha taught, and they became enlightened on hearing that Anattalakana Sutta, Discourse on Selflessness. His name was Asaji. So Sariputta is walking by, he sees this monk, very calm, peaceful demeanor, and he says, you know, please, sir, you look very radiant. Who's your teacher and what does he teach? And Asaji didn't feel really competent to give a whole long discourse, but he just said one thing. He said, that which has the nature to arise also has the nature to cease. Sariputta heard the words and became a stream enterer. And then he struggled for two weeks till he became an arhant. <laughs> That's because it said he thought a lot. <laughs> I think it would be interesting to look at our own minds in those, in those moments when we are really contemplating, when we are seeing the changing nature of phenomena. So not only, not only kind of be aware of that process of change, but if you remember, turn the attention back on to the quality of the mind at those moments, because maybe we won't have attained to stream entry, but we get a taste of the quality of freedom. Because in those moments, when we are really seeing the momentary change, the mind is not grasping. The mind is not clinging. And I think it's helpful to recognize the quality of that. The quality of that experience. So I thought tonight, just kind of in the ending part of the talk, to speak a little bit about stream entry and what this term means, because it arises a lot in the suttas. We find it referred to a lot. And I think it can become a source of inspiration, but also of confusion. And it can be a source of aspiration, and it can also be a source of grasping. So maybe it'll be helpful just to come to some kind of understanding of what the Buddha is referring to when he uses this term. He's referring to that stage of realization where one is destined for full awakening. One has entered the stream and has closed the door to rebirth in states of suffering. And this happens because at that moment or time of stream entry, 
the first three of the ten fetters that bind us to conditioned existence, those fetters have been uprooted. And those are the fetters of doubt, of blind belief in ceremonies and rituals, and in the view of self. These have been uprooted. So at one point, Sariputta went to see the Buddha and in quite a kind of charming little dialogue, the Buddha is asking Sariputta, Oh, Sariputta, this is said, the stream, the stream. What now, Sariputta, is the stream? So it's kind of nice that the Buddha is asking Sariputta. And Sariputta replies, the noble eightfold path is the stream. So then the Buddha asks again, Sariputta, this is said, a stream enterer, a stream enterer. What now, Sariputta, is a stream enterer? And Sariputta replied, one who possesses the noble eightfold path is called a stream enterer. These These are pretty direct statements about the quality of that understanding or that realization. But a question that comes up often for people in practice is how can I know? How do I know whether I really possess the Eightfold Path or I'm just renting it for a while? Uh, so this, <laughs> I think this is an important question. <laughs> so Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and attendant and all-around lovable monk, he would often ask the Buddha for the lowdown on various monks and nuns and lay women and lay men. You know, when they died, he would, he would always be going to the Buddha and asking them about, you know, their destiny, where they were reborn, and their level of attainment. You know, well, how did so-and-so do? How did so-and-so do? And so the Buddha, at a certain point, replied to Ananda, after answering this many, many times, you know, saying where people had been reborn and what level of awakening they had attained or not. So then he said, It is not surprising, Ananda, that a human being should die. But if each time someone has died, you would approach and question me about the matter, that would be troublesome for the Tathagata. (laughs) (laughs) Therefore, Ananda, I will teach you a Dhamma exposition called the Mirror of the Dhamma through which a noble disciple, if he wishes, could declare of himself, I am a stream enterer, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as my destination. Okay, and what is the mirror of the Dhamma? A noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream enterer. Confirmed confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, who possesses virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, freeing, praised by the wise, 
ungrasped, leading to concentration. So talking now about sila. So these are the four things. The noble disciple who possesses these four things is a stream enterer. There's one other quality which is mentioned in another place of stream entry. Which I think is also a helpful measure for us. It's another aspect of this mirror of the Dhamma. The Buddha was talking to two lay people. They were they were royal chamberlains to King Pasanadi, who was one of the ancient kings in the Buddhist time. So in this, the list is slightly different. The last element in the list is slightly different. The Buddha is talking to these, to these two lay people. A noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream enterer. Confirmed confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. And he dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. A noble disciple who possesses these four things is a stream-enterer. So these are the qualities that we can really look to in ourselves. Have we developed them? Do we possess them? Stream entry has a couple of important implications. The first is that at that point, we actually have entered the stream. You know, we have such confidence, unbroken confidence, in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, which really means the path. We have unbroken confidence in the path to awakening on the Noble Eightfold Path, we have entered the stream that only goes one way, goes towards awakening. So that's the first implication. The second implication is that there's still more work to do. I mean, this isn't the end of the path. We've just entered the stream. So there was... A lay person, his name was Mahanama, who belonged to the Sakya people, which was the land of the people where the Buddha was born, the Sakyas, which is why he's called Sakya Muni, sage of the Sakyas. So this man, Mahanama, a lay person, who had attained stream entry, came to the Buddha and made an interesting comment. He said that his mindfulness still got muddled when he was caught in crowds and he saw people running around and roaming excitedly here and there. He asked an interesting question. He said, if I should die in this moment of muddlement, of bewilderment, what would be his destination? I thought, that's... That's really an interesting question. 
So we could substitute our own particular distractions. Maybe it's not the distractions of wandering around an Indian bazaar, you know, but we have our own distractions. So even after stream entry, even after one really is in possession of the Eightfold Path, you know, where our faith in it is confirmed, is steady, still we have these moments when we're muddled, when we're confused, when we're not mindful. So this is what the Buddha said. He said, don't be afraid, Mahanama. Your death will not be a bad one. When a person's mind has been fortified for a long time by faith and virtue, by learning and generosity and wisdom, his mind goes upward, goes to distinction. This reminded me a little bit of a question that somebody asked the Dalai Lama once about at the time of death, you know, especially if there's a lot of pain, you know, is it a bad thing to take pain medication? You know, because it might dull the mind or cloud the mind, confuse the mind. And quite surprisingly to me, the Dalai Lama said he thought it was fine. And it was reminiscent of this answer of the Buddha, because he said, consciousness in the process of dying, and the whole death, that death process and what happens after death, is so powerful and will unfold according to our deep habituated tendencies that kind of what we take of pain medication at the time of death is really a very surface thing compared to the depth and the intensity of the energy that happens then. And so it's just like when a person's mind has been fortified for a long time by faith, by virtue, by learning, by generosity, by wisdom, when this is what we have habituated, the mind goes upward, it goes to distinction. Now this realization of stream entry can happen in many ways. Sometimes it's a spontaneous opening that can happen at any time in our lives. You know, we might be hearing a short teaching, like Sariputta, and the mind releases into the unborn, into that which doesn't arise and pass away. It's like just in hearing that simple teaching all that which arises must pass away. It's possible to hear that and just relax into the unarisen. It could happen outside the context of any particular teaching. Just we're going along in our lives and certain conditions come together and because of past parami, past work, maybe in past lives, something happens and there's just an opening to that reality. It also can happen going through the very classical stages of insight. 
which is a way of, through practice, deepening our perception, refining our perception of the changing nature, leading to disenchantment, leading to dispassion, leading to release. Now, people's experience of stream entry will vary tremendously. And in the Abhidhamma, they talk of seven different kinds of stream enters. You know, there's, there's like lists for everything. And this depends on the relative strength of the different spiritual faculties. You know, of, of faith or energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, depending on how strong they are and which one is strong. So we'll experience it in different ways. For some people, it is a huge and radical change. It's like you know a massive earthquake or a bolt of lightning that happens with this massive shift of perspective. And for other people, it may be a moment that they hardly even know has happened. You know, it's just like a quick little moment, and they might well not know it has happened. That's the range uh, of this experience. So why do we talk about this, and why is it in the suttas? One reason is that it is a milepost on the path. And a benefit of the map is that it points, and this is just one of the signposts, but the map of the Buddhist teachings, of the spiritual journey leading to full awakening, it points out to us, yeah, there's this milepost and this milepost and this milepost. And it reminds us that many people, you know, countless, countless beings, have walked on what has been called in the suttas the ancient royal road to Nibbana. Now, this is the ancient royal road to liberation. Many beings have walked on it, facing the same difficulties and the same challenges that we do. So that's the benefit of the map. The danger of the map is that people can become attached to the idea of attainment. You know, and this can easily happen. Either before experiences, you know, and attached to the idea in a grasping way, after certain experiences, you know, of getting attached to the idea, to the concept, and really all that does is reinforce the sense of self, the sense of I. So that's the danger of the map that we need to be aware of. It's also helpful to know that there are many different maps. This is just one, and other traditions describe this unfolding journey in very different ways. So we use it, if we wish, in as skillful a way as possible, inspiring us to keep walking on this ancient royal road. So one way of holding it all in balance is expressed in some lines 
from a Tibetan teaching. It's called The Seven-Point Mind Training by Atisha, who was an Indian adept, who was quite an extraordinary person. He traveled all the way to Indonesia, which at that time was a Buddhist center, uh, to get some teachings which had been lost elsewhere. And then he went to Tibet. I think he, he was in his 60s when he went to Tibet. Uh, and this was in the very early years of Buddhism in Tibet. And he brought the teachings there, and he, he lived there till his death. And I think he was there 13 years. So he was quite an extraordinary master. So this is from one, one teaching of his. He said, Consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the faults of others. Explore the nature of unborn awareness. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation. It's the last one. That's really helpful. <laughs> Consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the fault of others. Explore the nature of unborn awareness. At all times, we simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation. So let's sit for a few moments. Before we chant the sharing of blessings, I'd just like to acknowledge that uh, quite a few of you will be leaving at the end of this month, and then many more are coming on May 1st. Uh, it would be just nice to share the, the blessings with that in mind. Uh, we're really sharing these blessings with each other. It's really been quite wonderful. Now let us 
chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on April 28, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.